0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Getting Hammered. We are changing it up today. Vic has been given the day off because it's girl power time. I am here with, you know what, I'm not even going to list all their affiliations because they write for everyone. What I'm going to say is that they are consistently in the top three of women I would like to start a compound with, which the feds would eventually raid due to our wrong think. That is who I'm with today. It's Bethany Mandel. And Carol Markowitz, who have written the book Stolen Youth: How Radicals Are Erasing Innocence and Indoctrinating a Generation, which is like flying up the charts. Congratulations, ladies. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well good to be on with you, girl bosses. <laughs> so let's let's get started on this book, which I've sort of been witness to the, the birth of. <laughs> Speaking of our compound, by the way, we've had 13 children between us in the 10 years-ish since we've They're met Like I'm
1: slacking now. <laughs> Now that MK has a fourth, it's like, what am I I even doing
0: here? I know you gotta. It's it's you know keeping up with Bethany is the really hard one. So our our compound would be impressive, is what I'm saying. But on the subject of children, you know, we talk all the time, just on our back channels and our texts, about how best to raise our kids in the culture that we find ourselves in, and that's what this book is about. Tell me, we'll start with Carol about how the idea came about and why you felt compelled to write a book, because as I know, it's a real pain in the ass, right? <laughs> so you, and when you're raising kids, it's a lot yeah. to ask of yourself. So
1: why? I, I'm, I've been saying that this is my first and last book. It was a lot. It was a like a lot of experience here. You know, I love the finished product so much. I loved working with Bethany. I, I felt like this was a super important thing to write about. And I know what's funny is that like, I would say pre-pandemic, like kids were not my topic. It just... I don't know. I used to write about all kinds of stuff. I feel like I used to write about sex a lot. And I started about like personal relationships a lot. And kids aren't cool. You know, they're just not. And so for a long time, I focused on my cool topics and wrote for a cultural perspective on all kinds of things, but really didn't focus on kids that much. And then the pandemic hit. And I saw the way kids were Not just left behind, but, like, completely forgotten. Like, there was a moment where Governor Cuomo, when I was living in New York, the the, the then governor, released his reopening plan and put schools last. Like, literally, like, with concerts and, like, rubbing up against strangers. There you had schools. And I just—it focused me on the issue of children in a way that nothing else had before— And I knew I could protect my own kids and I knew I could do what I needed to do for them, but I couldn't avoid and I couldn't unsee what was happening to kids around me and how little the people in charge cared. So I would say that this book for me stemmed from that moment of, wow, they do not care what happens to children and I have to.
0: Yeah. Bethany, I think you and I talk a lot about in raising our own kids that like, you know, I sort of anticipated some indoctrination from, say, if I sent them to public schools, right? Like I, I knew that was going to happen. That was part of my education. Frankly, I have, I went to woke schools before that was really a thing. They were really innovative in my hometown. (laughs) And so I knew that was going to be part of the picture, but what is your argument about what has changed in the, since I was a kid or even in the last 10 years that makes this book stolen youth necessary?
2: So, I mean, I think what's changed is that there is a a forced conformity that did not exist when we were kids. When I went to high school, I went to also a super woke high school, the Beacon School on the Upper West Side. And we were famous on the front page of the New York Post for hosting a illegal trip to Cuba that broke the embargo. That was before they had opened the borders. And they just went to Cuba and lied about it. And the kids all were coached to say that they went to Toronto for spring break, but all came back from Toronto with really nice tans and they got stopped. They got stopped by border control and were like, were you really in Toronto? Really? So anyway, that was where I went to school. And there were kids in my school who were openly conservative and Republican and that, you know, they were really rebellious. and But everyone sort of was friends with them and they were involved in classes. Their teachers didn't shame them for it. And I don't, I don't think that that would happen now. I don't think even in my super woke high school where it was literally part of the mission statement to be woke and it was from the administration on down that like, you know, communism, rah, rah, that's why they went to Cuba in a school-sponsored trip at a public school to learn about how great communism was. Even in that school, you could be accepted if you were not one of them. That's not the case now. There is a forced conformity from teachers on down to students. But what's really sort of terrifying to me as a parent and, you know, as like a concerned American is that this forced conformity isn't just about sort of worldview, but it's also parents and administrators, guidance counselors and principals are actively working against parents and working behind their backs. One of my friends local to me recently told me that her, her school librarian has been putting books in her daughter's hand about being transgender. She's in eighth grade. They told her how she could obtain a chest binder without her parents' knowledge or permission. And she talked to her mom about how she could have top surgery because she had been sort of marinating in school-provided transgender materials. So that's, that's the really terrifying thing to me as a parent.
0: Yeah, I think to me during the pandemic, and for many of the moms in my community, which is a, you know, I'm the outlier, it's a very blue, Northern Virginia community. One of the most important realizations, which even I had not realized as a out and out conservative who everybody knows is conservative, is that the school board sees me as the adversary. It, and not because I'm conservative, just because I'm a parent, right? Any, yeah. any dissent at all is considered problematic, particularly during the COVID days. And that was, that was news to a lot of parents and is what has caused you know, some of the quote-unquote you know, problematic near-domestic terrorism, as the National <laughs> School Board Association would have it, from parents who desired to make their dissent known right Carol and yeah. Carol you watched a lot of that in your community
1: yeah i you know the the whole thing with the difference between, like, what used to be liberal and now is woke is so dramatic to me. Before we moved to Florida, we were living in Park Slope, Brooklyn. And anybody who doesn't know, that basically is Cuba in, you know, in Brooklyn. <laughs> far, far deep left. Every bad idea that ever exists, Park Slope's, like, we're all in on it. As soon as defund police happened, like, every house on my block, and not every, but, like, you know, half the houses on my block, which are all, like, multi-gazillion dollar houses Had defund police signs in their windows. Obviously, everybody had a BLM sign. But you know, it just, the idea that this place was somewhere that my husband and I moved to raise our kids and we thought that would be okay just a few years ago is now wild to us because it really wasn't crazy. Yes, it was liberal, but all of New York was liberal. We had moved there from the Upper West Side, which is like, if, you know, if Park Slope is Cuba, I don't know, I, it's like maybe Venezuela, but like not not quite, you know, not, not the perfect comparison. But part, Upper West Side is also very, very liberal. So we knew what we were getting, but we never imagined how insane it would get and how that liberalism would become all-encompassing to them. And, you know, I'd get threats, you know, put on my house and, you know, on, on my door. And it, it just it became untenable because these people have— wound themselves up that any any stepping outside of their line, any distinction whatsoever, any non-agreement is is something that is just not acceptable. And again, going back to the COVID years when we saw that the schools were closed and I watched my rich neighbors, I watched them you know, put put up these signs and march for equity and then send their own kids to private schools or form pods or move to their beach house or whatever and not say a word for any of the other kids who couldn't do any of that. That for us was like the breaking point. Like, yeah, we could have also done that. We could have also got our kids a tutor and a pod and never mentioned the fact that schools were closed for the people who couldn't afford that. But we couldn't unsee it. And that was like the main thing for us where it went from this liberalism, which we had always lived among and, and accepted, to this unbearable wokeness thing that we could no longer accept.
0: Well, it's, it travels a path. And, you know, Guy Benson and I wrote in our book, End of Discussion, about this, some something about this mm-hmm. phenomenon, although it wasn't called woke at the time, or even cancel culture at the time. And it's only gotten worse since then and yeah you know I'm sorry I didn't solve it guys
1: but <laughs> I really like your book for for our book like I, I it was one of the books that I felt like this would like trace the, the origins of this so I I absolutely think that you guys hit it right at the beginning where this conformity was taking hold and but at the time it was like they would say end of discussion and we'd kind of laugh at them And continue the discussion. But now it's like, literally, they'll call your work and be like, no, she's not stopping to talk about this. So now you got to do something. And I've written about the people who got fired for very now mainstream COVID opinions and had their whole lives destroyed. So the end of discussion was no longer like acceptable to them. I was like, now and I must destroy you.
0: Yeah, I must also, you know, beat you into submission by ruining your life. And not just public figures, not just people like us who are sort of versed in sticking up for ourselves, but for just Mm -hmm. regular people and that's where the liberalism turns to wokeism, turns to real illiberalism and i want to thank you carol for this book goes hard from the beginning and is like let me tell you a little bit about conformity (laughs) because in my family we know a little something about it can you tell me about how you how you open with your family's history with some of the forced conformity in a a very real
1: way (laughs) My great-grandfather Aaron Gelberg died in a gulag in the Soviet Union and I was raised by his two daughters in Brooklyn. They one of the, one of his daughters went on to have my father and that was the only child produced of the four Gelberg siblings that I tell the story in the opening chapter. And the gulags were my my great grandfather was there because he owned a bakery and one day owning a bakery became illegal because that was just what the ideology demanded it was like now we believe something else and so what you do is no longer acceptable and so he died there he died shortly after he arrived there i think my great grandmother went to visit him one time he was like all the way east like almost by japan and it was Something that scarred my family because it wasn't just that he was killed in the gulag, which, you know, was bad enough. His daughters had to pretend to love the man that did it to him, Stalin. They had to pretend that Stalin was the greatest thing ever because this is what you did. You had to make a spectacle out of your conformity and out of the way that you accepted the, the opinion. And there was only one opinion. You know, I, t- I tell the story in the book, but when Stalin died, the two daughters who whose dad had been killed by this man set out to make a scrapbook of his life. But then a few months later, Stalin was no longer favorable. He became, you know, suddenly he was out, too. And so they had to burn the scrapbook. And it was just the the case of you had to adjust your opinions to whatever the, the one belief was. And that's where we are. And we keep changing the language and changing the history and altering, you know, the way you're allowed to talk about stuff. Like, you can't be not racist. You have to be anti-racist. And, you know, the, the words that we use, one of the things that I, I don't think we talk about this in the book, but I, that I really believe that the word trans is going to become, you know, anti-trans. Like, eventually it'll be like, how dare you use the word trans to describe this obviously woman, even though she has a beard? You know, it's going to be like, this is what we do now. We no longer use the word trans. That's coming.
0: So I think that some of the criticism of women like us, moms like us, writers like us, is to say, like, you guys are being hysterical about this, right? Like, this, like to, to compare it to the conformity of the former Soviet Union is crazy. This is not state enforced, for the most part. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you guys are just going too far with this comparison. But Bethany, in your chapter later in the book about, about medical the wokeism and in medical circles, I was reminded about how, like the bakery, the rules can just change under your feet dramatically in an instant depending on what the zeitgeist requires, right? So when the American Association of Pediatrics decided, oh, wait, we can't do schools opening. We have to do schools closing. We can't do masks are bad and faces are good. We have to do masks are good and faces are bad. I mean, it just like, instantly the 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 conventional wisdom and the science changes as needed and it's real creepy and reminiscent Mm -hmm. of a state-enforced conformity
2: to me i think the creepiest thing you know we we talk about covid in the book and we it seems sort of out of place like this is a woke war why would we talk about covid but covid was the the brick on the gas pedal for all of this stuff and one of the one of the things that There was a couple of topics that kept on coming up no matter who I talked to. And in the medical chapter, the thing that every single medical practitioner told me, whether they were a nurse or a doctor, was they had to talk off the record. They were scared to... There was one woman who was scared to even communicate with me in writing. She would only get me on the phone. She said, I might have some information that would be useful to you. I would love to talk to you. That was it. And I was like, okay. And her and all of the other doctors told me... That over the course of COVID, they were told that if they were guilty of spreading misinformation about the COVID vaccines, that they could lose their license, according to the licensing board. And they asked, and several of them replied to their state licensing board, what is the definition of misinformation, and how is this decided? Is there an appeals process? Like, tell me about this. And they were, all of their communications went unanswered, and this was in multiple states. And then after the pandemic, the the definition of misinformation was extended, and it wasn't just disinformation about the COVID vaccines, but then it turned into disinformation, period. One of them was, and I spoke to another person who works in the, in the medical field in OBGYN, and they were specifically sent a notice that was similar to the COVID one about reproductive rights when Roe versus Wade was knocked down by the Supreme Court. And so all of these medical practitioners are i mean they one the one woman who wouldn't talk to me in writing said this is my entire life like i have been working for this this was my dream to be a doctor i have been working my tail off since middle school this, i am my family's breadwinner i am terrified of a kid coming to me and saying they are trans and i have to treat them according to how my state licensing board and how my medical associations according to their guidelines, which I deeply and fundamentally disagree with, not on a religious grounds, but on moral grounds, she, she swears by do no harm, and she thinks this is harmful. So she, she told me, she's, she said, I'm terrified of a kid coming to me one day and saying they're trans. And what do I do? Because no one will tell me what constitutes disinformation. No one will tell me how I could save my career if I fall afoul of these people. It is... Not necessarily state-sponsored, but, I mean, everyone in a position of authority who determines who can practice medicine in this country have determined that everyone who practices medicine has to conform or else.
0: Also, notably, the state of California, from whence all of our worst policies come, (laughs) attempted to make a state-enforced rule that prohibited physicians from distributing, quote, dis- and misinformation. So- this is not some fever dream, no matter what those folks would like us to believe. And I I agree with you, Bethany, that this was, to me, the COVID response, and I'll get you to chime in on this, Carol, exemplified all these trends yeah. and made me realize, oh my gosh, this is like much faster moving than I had realized.
1: Yeah, I'm absolutely, I think that was such a breaking point for so many of us. And, you know, I've become more than anything, like a red state evangelist now. I've never lived anywhere normal before. I don't know. I didn't know it was possible. It's glorious. I highly recommend it to both of you. It's really like a place. And, you know, we knew that Florida was sort of the beacon of that because of their COVID response. It was because they were like, Wait, this is crazy. Why would we do this? Like why you know, they didn't want to lock down and then they didn't want to mask and they opened schools as fast as they can. And I say they, I mean, you know, under Governor DeSantis's leadership, but it was also Floridians were just far more sane than my New York, you know society around me. It wasn't just the politicians, like the politicians I could get over. It was like the people just internalized what the politicians were saying and and ran with it. and they listened to advice that made no sense. And they enforced guidelines that they knew made no sense. So I, I I saw it happening in New York. And I just the move to Florida was like the greatest thing ever. I, you know, I'm i in New York right now. I cannot. One, wait of, to my,
2: one of my favorite oh. columns that you wrote, Carol, over the course of the pandemic was for the New York Post. And I've said this to you before. Something that I loved about New York was that we were fighters. And we, we never we always questioned yeah. authority. And we never just rolled over and did what we were told as New Yorkers. And that column that you wrote for the New York Post that was like, where are you New Yorkers? Like, where is the New York? Like that to me really, it made me feel really sad because I'm also born and bred New York, not in the same way you are, but I've lived in and out of New York City for many, many years of my life, most of which were the formative ones. But that that to me was was a breaking point with me also was sort of the, the blue state response to, to COVID because it's all about questioning authority. That's what you're supposed to do to be cool.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. Right. The coolness thing is a conundrum, right? Because you talked about not writing about kids because it's not cool. But (laughs) it actually and conservatives often argue this, I think, you know, not too convincingly all the time that we are actually the anti-establishment for sure group. And like that Mm -hmm. should make us the rebels and cool. But it doesn't it doesn't translate that way in the media. But a lot of people, because we're social creatures in their communities, are genuinely concerned, not just about economic consequences of which there are plenty now for mm-hmm. falling afoul mm-hmm. of of the woke philosophy of the moment, but just of violate or like violating the social norms yeah. around them. What do you guys suggest? And I find myself even being too timid sometimes. Yeah. When I'm, this is my job is to be the weirdo, right? This I enjoy it. How do you suggest preventing that in oneself? Like, what's the guide to being the loudmouth weirdo?
1: Yeah. it's You're absolutely right. It's it's hard. It's not, there's nothing easy about it. And in the book, I tell the story of my middle son. We, we moved within Brooklyn, and he switched schools in first grade. And he fit, switched schools after school year had already started, so it was a little awkward. And then a few days after he switched schools, his new school was doing the climate protest. And it was like, oh, I have this situation now where I definitely don't want him doing it, but I also don't want him to be the weird new kid who sits out. And so I let him march around with his sign in first grade that said, Earth dies, we die. And then he came up with all these like ways that we could potentially save the world that involve like helicopters flying us to caves and like, you wanted my first grader on it. He's on it. Here he is. Here's his great ideas. You wanted him focused on it. But there was another story. I feel like I have to tell you guys this one. Summer of 2020, you know, the George Floyd riots are happening and it's COVID is obviously at, at, at its like... Heyday on the Park Slope Parents Board, which is a, you know, you could just imagine what insanity. The Park Slope Parents Board, side note, is known for one time many years ago, somebody posted, I found a boy's hat and they got like a thousand comments. Like, what makes it a boy's hat? Like, obviously, this hat could belong to anybody, you know, whatever. So crazy people, let's just say it like that. But... This woman wrote, like, hey, we've been staying in, like, Westchester for the pandemic so our kids could have some space and whatever. My husband has to start going back into the office and we're concerned about the crime because the crime was really going crazy. And she got all these comments being like, what crime? What crime? And and she also, she asked, like, maybe my husband can stay with other husbands who are in the same situation, maybe staying outside the city, but they have to stay in the city one or two nights a week. Maybe they can get an apartment or something. And it was like, why can't your husband stay with women? Why, you know, just like it was every leftist idiocy, like there is no crime covid why did you have to escape you know for covid you could just be here and in your you know 600 square foot apartment and then you know why does your husband have to room with other husbands you could room with women just the same and it was like this woman got barraged i mean liberals i know reached out to me and were like oh my god this is bad this is really bad this is like another universe and nobody's in reality and that's sort of where i think the modern left is just outside of reality
0: yeah what do you what do you think for tips bethany Famously, a grandma killer in the year of our Lord 2020. I should say the year of my Lord. Sorry, guys. (laughs) You're talking to
2: two Jews here.
1: I like saying. I am so problematic. I say the year of the
2: Lord. So I mean, I always tell you. So I became a Karen over the course of the pandemic because I wanted to Karen the Karens, and so I think a lot of our COVID response was because the loudmouth minority kept on pushing people to be more extreme. And so, you know, the masks stuck around longer because there was a loud contingent of people who demanded it. Whereas the majority of the people in my county, like when the masks went off and everyone realized it, because no one paid as close attention as I did, they were like, oh, okay. And probably more than half of people took their masks off pretty quickly in public. But I became the anti-Karen Karen. And I yelled at my Montgomery County Council on Zoom all the time. It was like my favorite, you know, pastime. But I also like did really annoying little things to just every small business and everything in the country. There was um, a children's museum that you told me about Mary Catherine that like still had like a vaccine mandate on their website. And I was like, I'm going to email them and pretend I'm about to go there and tell them I object. But for me also, it was hard to, oh, sorry, just my baby out. But for me, it's also sometimes to be a Karen with people who aren't strangers. So like I'm happy to Karen the the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. Like, I karen the crap out of Colonial Williamsburg. But it was much harder to Karen my – and it's funny because my mother-in-law's named Karen, and she lives here, and I hope she doesn't overhear this and think that I'm, like, using her name as an epithet. <laughs> I'm just, like, all she'll hear on her end is, like, Karen, Karen, Karen. But I karen my my pediatrician recently, and that was a hard one for me. And, Mary Heather, you and I talked about that sort of internal struggle of, like, I don't want my pediatrician to know who I am and what I do. And maybe mm-hmm. they do already. I don't want to sort of yeah. impact my kids' medical care if one of the pediatricians hates me. Because that happened with me with a midwife. I, I had a midwife who hated me and she avoided me and did not provide adequate medical care to me when I was pregnant. And and she offloaded me on the other midwives in the practice who didn't feel the same. So I'm definitely sensitive to that. But in the end, you know, recently I emailed them and I said, you know, the masks are no longer required by law. And my children have never seen your faces. And I'm concerned, especially about my younger kids, that they're going to get sick at your office because they're touching their faces all the time because they have a really ineffective mask on. So, I mean, I, I think, no. They respond? They did not. No. I've been thinking about replying again. I don't know. I don't. But again, I don't want to be, you know, I know it's hard.
1: it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. There's nothing easy about it. It's it's hard. And, you know, I, we tell people to be brave and we have to, uh, you're obviously being brave yourself. It, it's a really tough thing, but yeah. fights yeah. are not easy. And yeah. this is a fight for things that we believe in. And we yeah, have to be my... in this fight.
0: I've been, I've been resolving, by the way, to be a little bit more like that and trying to, because <laughs> I, I felt like during 2020 and 2021, it was like, all I can do is teach my kids yeah. at home. You know, everybody's sort of in this crisis mode. And I was like, this is what I can handle. And I can tweet about it and I can write about it and talk about mm-hmm. it on CNN or wherever occasionally and see if I can get the word out that way and be an ally, as they say, to the, the sane folks who wanted some of these restrictions gone. I've been resolving to be more of that. And it is tough because it's, it's not in my DNA to be the person who's like, I need to speak with someone about this. Right. Um, <laughs> So it's an odd thing, and one one of the things that bothers me about the forced conformity, and particularly invoking it with children, is this thing that people do where it's like, oh, it's a free country, they can still talk in class or college or whatever. And it's like, we're the outliers. We Mm -hmm. are people who are trained and, in fact, enjoy having dust-ups with people. That is not... The norm, and it yeah. certainly is not the norm for a seven or eight year old in a class or an 18 year old in a college class who has to go up against authority in a pretty scary environment that has real punishments for stepping out of line. And people, liberals,
1: just tell you, ah, oh, no, it's, it's totally fine. You guys are freaking out over nothing. Right. Or you deserve this reaction because you said the wrong thing. And it's, you know, yeah, they it, it's like they sort of have a, a stranglehold on what's acceptable conversation and what's acceptable positions. And so many people are just afraid of them, even though they're such a, a small minority. Yeah, I mean, in, Stolen- oh, sorry. I okay, mean, in, ahead, in the case of
2: college, also, our research assistant went to war with her college about the booster stuff. Mm-hmm. And she just barely escaped having to do it. But now it's basically like if you do not conform to the point of handing over your bodily autonomy to your college, you're out. And that to me, and that we didn't get into that in the book, because, you know, there's only so many pages in a book. But I, I, I can't think of anything sort of crazier, and more authoritarian than demanding people give up their bodily autonomy in order to get a college degree. And the, the letter that our research assistant wrote to her college was really powerful, because she said, you know, when I applied and enrolled. This shot didn't exist. And now you're telling me that in order to graduate, I have to get a third shot?
0: Yeah, it's it's to me, it's mystifying I w- that people are paying for this experience on college campuses, <laughs> which is like almost very expensive, almost entirely virtual for a very, very long time, much longer than it needed to be, and now requiring three and four shots of yeah. people who are not at all at risk. I mean, it's an insanity. That's neither here nor there, but I wanted to... I, I wanted to ask about kids as activists, and Carol, you write about this in a chapter in Stolen Youth called "Child Soldiers," about the left, and you, you noted in your first graders' class that them sort of being just turned into activists in their actual right. school environments. Can you talk a little bit about what's what's the strategy there, and what does that mean?
1: At this, so again, I, I I admit that I failed when my first when my son was in first grade, and I let him do the the climate march, but I have not let him do any. Any political activity since, and in Brooklyn, that it's it's. I mean, we moved to Florida, but in in Brooklyn, they they have basically become like once a year or so they get these kids out for some sort of protest. They've protested guns, they protested hate, you know. Generally, they just you know do all these like political activities at school now that are just part of the process. And I think that you have to see your child as an autonomous person who is not going to be used for somebody else's purposes and. It's hard. Again, I failed that first test, but I will never fail another one. There is no way that I would ever let my kid ever participate in anything. No letter writing campaigns, no, you know, government affiliated charities, no UNICEF, no nothing. Like I'm just we're we're completely out of the school indoctrination game. And I haven't seen any of it in Florida yet. Thankfully, I'm definitely on the lookout for it because part of what Bethany and I describe in the book is that you can't feel safe somewhere. You can't be like, oh, I live in a red state or I live in a red town or whatever. It, it's happening everywhere. And part of the problem is that it's very hard to convince parents that this is happening because it it maybe isn't happening at their school as dramatically. Maybe it isn't even happening yet, but it, it will and it, it, it can and it will. And it's something that they need to be watching out for.
0: Yeah. You say thinking of your kids of, as autonomous. And I want to think of my children as autonomous kids who need to learn to think for themselves. Right. And the left. As you note, and some of this stuff is hard to talk about when it's talking about losing innocence of -hmm. children, the left and many of these activists want to think of children as autonomous, tiny adults, right? right? And not even autonomous. They're just like, you are separate from your family and you are to be brought into our Mm -hmm. ideology. Can you talk a little bit, Bethany, about this very hard subject of sort of the sexualizing of children very young and how... How widespread is it? Because, again, the argument is, oh, you guys, this doesn't happen yeah. very much. It's not a real thing. You're only seeing the outliers on so, TikTok. So,
2: I mean, I think <laughs> the, the most perfect example is the Drag Queen Story Hours, which were sort of the beginning of it was a fight between David David French and Saurabh And it became a punchline on the right. and And it was for a long time. It was an outlier. They weren't really happening in any sort of widespread way. And now fast forward to 2021, 22, 23, the Jewish community where I live hosted a drag queen story hour. Like the the PJ library, if people are familiar with that, it's run by the Jewish Federation. Like they hosted a drag queen story hour. My local library hosts drag queen story hours. My local park, Brookside Gardens, hosts regular drag queen story hours. So a lot of these things are happening either with my donor dollars, whether they're with the Jewish Federation, which do great work otherwise but have now made me very reticent to donate to them ever again or
0: with my tax dollars in the parks and and in the libraries but yeah i sometimes joke i sometimes joke that i missed the cultural moment where drag queens and drag shows became the like ultimate expression right, of art right. in <laughs> our society and must be ubiquitous in yeah. every fashion and so you know
2: i don't think anyone currently and I'm not going to say never say never because God only knows how fast this stuff is accelerating. But there, you've never heard of a stripper story hour. You've never like that's you know. But so what they're doing, it it's it's very great branding and great marketing because all of this stuff, most of the sexualized material in books, the pornographic books material in the books, 100% of that content is LGB, and by objecting to this sexualized content they're able to say you're just a bigot because you're uncomfortable with images of gay and lesbian sex and you're uncomfortable with drag queens and the answer is sure i'm uncomfortable with all of these sorts of images in children's books and in children's spaces but this is you know this is their way of fitting it in while being able to cloak themselves in an armor and having this ammo ready. And they do it, I mean, Carol talks about it in one of her chapters as well. They do it with child soldiers as well. They make the mascots of their political campaigns, whether they be guns with the Parkland kids or climate with Greta Thunberg. They make children into their mascots. And so if you dare object to what they're saying, how could you possibly insult a child? well like because you've made them the spokesperson and i have a disagreement but they've they're able to manipulate the conversation in a way that you are you have your hands tied behind your back
0: yeah i i'm i'd say sometimes like i'm as close to a free speech absolutist for adults as you're probably gonna get i mean like pretty close i would say but the idea of age limits on appropriate material is a totally normal (laughs) thing or was until recently that now school boards are like, Oh no, that's not a thing. We don't consider that part of it. And that's part of this like turning children into adults for the use of an ideology, which is very outside of what we've been used to doing. I know you guys have a hard out. So I'm going to make this quick. Each of you has a philosophy for dealing with this. Carol deals with how to fight from the inside. Bethany says, here's how to take your kids out of this, can you guys give me a quick summary of of how parents can approach these issues from each of your points of view?
1: Carol, you can go. Well, mine is, I lay, I lay the foundation at home for them to go out into the world and understand what our values are at home. It's funny because so many parents do not talk about their values to their kids. They, they feel like that's awkward or you know, they they let the kids see these commercials that are like, we believe blah, blah, blah. But like and at home, they don't say we believe and they and they tell them we don't do that. Our, my kids have become woke police. They completely are, are attuned to anything that might be inappropriate for them. And they bring it home to me immediately. And they say, like, is this something? And sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. So uh, for me, I have to leave my kids out in the culture and I I give them the tools to fight back and to be, I don't want to say culture warriors, but warriors for them, for themselves, for their own peace of mind. I don't want to raise anxious children who are afraid of everything. I want them to be resilient and to go through their lives, being able to deal with alternate opinions and alternate philosophies and be able to stand strong in their own. So
2: we kind of, we, we, posited that our positions are diametrical, sort of in the conclusions, but they're, they're not super opposed. I, one of the most powerful conversations that I had for Stolen Youth was with a mom who had basically lost her young adult children. They were in their early 20s, and they had both her son and daughter gone woke and disowned her and her husband, and they had next to no relationship with them. And she cried on the phone, and she told me the biggest mistake that I had was not affirmatively sharing our values with our children and not having open conversations. And she begged me, and I did so. She said, please write that. Please hit that point home. And I'm, like, getting chills talking about it because she just said it through, like, practically sobbing. She said, please tell people to have these conversations with their children. And we do as well in our house. For me, and I think that this sort of comes from my perspective of having like a really messed up childhood. I am hyper conscious of guarding my children's innocence. And I am very, I'm very, I don't know how to say this, like disappointed in myself that I have a lot of adult conversations on radio programs, for example, on my phone within earshot of my children. And so, I feel like my kids know more about the world than I necessarily would want them to know about in a perfect ideal situation. Yep. But I, I think that childhood innocence is a one-shot deal. And once they lose it, it's gone forever. And so I think it's a very fine line of sort of protecting them and keeping them separated, but also preparing them to face the world. And, and it's, it's a line that is very blurry for, I think, everyone. But for us, like, we we homeschool for a myriad of reasons, not just because of the woke stuff. You know, we would ultimately send our kids to Jewish school, and my husband is a journalist, and, like, you know, we couldn't have six kids and send them to private school, so here we are. So there's a lot of reasons we homeschool. But I also, I mean, to me, I think the easiest way to protect my kids from all of this culture stuff is to not let them be exposed to media, and so their favorite actor is Robin Williams. They love the whole canon. Flubber was a big hit recently. Mrs. Doubtfire, which is super problematic and no one would ever make nowadays. The Jumanji was a huge hit. My daughter watched it like 1500 times. So I know that I don't have to pre-screen Richie Rich and Jumanji. And so that sort of saves me there. And it's also just better content. You know, when you're producing content and you're so terrified of offending anyone. It comes out really vanilla and bland. And so. Oh, my gosh. The yes. flattening
0: of art yes. is so terrible. And so,
2: and so it's also like Mrs. Dowfire was amazing and a classic. And they'll never see anything like that made nowadays. And the book's the same. I tell a story in Soul and Youth about how my daughter brought home, without my realizing it, a graphic novel where there's a lesbian sex scene at a sleepover. And I objected. And again, was like told I was a bigot. And I said like, no, I don't really want my daughter to read that she can have a sexual encounter at a sleepover when she's nine. I don't think that's appropriate. And it, it, I, groomer has been used as an epithet and thrown around, I think, way too willy nilly by the right. And the Sourabh Amaris of the world, who I've honestly landed more on his end than David French's over the course of the last few, few years, but this is the literal definition of grooming, if, and I, I list the definition of grooming in stolen youth. Like, you are conditioning children to be desensitized to adults talking to them about sexuality behind their parents' backs, and like all of these. Like, so I don't want my daughter to think that she can have a sexual encounter at a sleepover. I actually don't allow my children to have sleepovers because, you know, the 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 probability of being sexually abused goes through the roof when they're at a sleepover. That's like one of the top places that kids are abused. Anyway, I'm, I'm babbling, but that's sort of my perspective on stepping back as much as I can from the yeah. culture of trying to protect my children's innocence.
0: Yeah, and and from that, which we didn't even get into this, but the, the social media is the one yeah, where no. I'm like, I have become radicalized, and I'm like, there will be <laughs> none of this in our venue. So thank you guys for being here. You can find them on Twitter at Carol, K-A-R-O-L, and at Bethany Shondark so you can listen to all their wisdom. I'm always proud of you guys. I'm always proud to be friends with you and impressed by you. But I'm even more impressed after I read (laughs) this. And I watched you writing it. It's really, I know it was a, a labor of love and real labor. It's also a call to arms, and it's important for parents to read this. So, by yourselves stolen youth by bethany mandel and carol markowitz thanks ladies until we get to the compound (laughs) i will talk to you over (laughs) text this has been another episode of getting hammered on nebulous media